By the way, my name is Mike Abendroth, and I'm not only a summer resident here in Santa Cruz County, but I'm a summer member of Santa Cruz Baptist Church. I don't know if that's pro tem, ad hoc, anecdotal member or not, but this is where we plant ourselves. And we do it for mainly one reason. And while you are kind and generous people, while the coffee is free and the donuts are free, uh, we're here because of the preaching, right? Everything flows from that. The other things are important, but it's not as important as hearing from the Word of God, Christ-centered preaching week in and week out. And as I said last week, aren't you glad you have a pastor that does that? You never have to say to yourself, well, will Drew do some kind of psychology thing today? You know, it's open your Bible. Here's Christ Jesus from the Word. So that's why we're here. What's your favorite Bible verse? Out of all the verses of the Bible, 66 books of the Bible, you probably have a favorite verse. I mean, the world has its favorite verse, judge not lest you be judged, right? Everybody's got a favorite verse. Some of you, it might be, for God so loved the world, he loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son, that those believing in him shouldn't perish but have life everlasting. And that's a wonderful verse. Some of you think, does God love me? Yes, I love that verse in Romans chapter 5 where God makes it conspicuous. He makes it obvious. He demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And you think, I love that verse. I love it when Paul says, because we echo with Paul's heart, and we say it's a, it's a trustworthy saying deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm foremost. And some of you probably like this verse the most. And I'll read it to make sure I get it word for word perfect. Is this your favorite verse? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For some, that's their favorite verse, and I understand it. Matter of fact, there's a book called All Things for Good written by Thomas Watson, a little Puritan book, and it's an easy Puritan book to read. And I remember seeing that when I lived in North Hollywood, California, and I thought, I should read that book. It's a classic book on the sovereignty of God. He's sovereign over every molecule, every atom, and I need to know that because my sight sees one thing, doesn't seem like God's sovereign, so I have to walk by faith in the sovereign God. I should read that book. I picked it up to read it, and I thought, nope, because if I do read it, God will make me live it. Put it away. <laughs> I thought, that's sure a dumb reason not to read a book. So I read the book and got laid off the next week. <laughs> I told you, Lord. What if verse 28 of Romans 8 wasn't true? What if God's not sovereign? What if this just is a big mess? What if God doesn't rule and reign? Sovereign, where he's the, the reigning sovereign king. Out of all the Lord's lording, he's the Lord. Out of all the king's king, he's the king. What if it's not true? Does that change anything? I hope you'd say to yourself, if that's true, we're dust. We're to be pitied. How can we live? But if it is true, it should make you think things like this. I can trust him. When bad things happen, I can still rest myself under the sovereign hand of God. I, I can have comfort in sorrow. I can have joy. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at the sovereignty of God, a wonderful pillow to rest your head on in times of joy and in sorrow from the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you've got a Bible, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week we did chapters 1 and 2. This week, chapter 3. Next week, I have no idea what Luke Abendroth is going to preach, but it probably won't be Ecclesiastes 4. 
God is sovereign. Nothing in this world happens out of his sovereign control. Nothing happens in a haphazard method. Nothing happens by chance, luck, serendipity. We at Bethlehem Bible Church back in Massachusetts, we don't even say potluck dinners because we don't believe in luck. We call them pot providences. It's harder to say. It's true. You could call them pot blessings if you want. But we don't believe in luck. We don't believe in chance. We don't believe in serendipitous activities. We believe God's sovereign. And as R.C. Sproul said, he's either sovereign over everything or he's not sovereign over anything. He is the Lord of heaven. He does everything, Ephesians 1, after the counsel of his own will. And every one of you dear Christians today need to be reminded, just like I was reminded all week in the study, that God's sovereign. We can trust him. Remember Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God, even when life what? Hurts. Especially needed is when things go wrong. Who do we turn to? And we're told that God is sovereign over all things. If you want a purpose from me, from me this morning, it's simple. After you learn about the sovereignty of God in Ecclesiastes 3, I want you to be able to say with David in Psalm 40, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done. Your thoughts toward us, there's none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. That's, that's my desire for you today, that you would have joy in the sovereignty of God, rest and trust in him, because the just shall live by what? Faith in this triune God who is sovereign over all things. Now we come to Ecclesiastes, remember chapter 1, verse 1, the words of the preacher. That's where we get the word Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes comes from the word to preach, and it's just a lot of things that the preacher says. So what does the preacher say? It's in the book of Ecclesiastes. And of course, you know the thesis statement is found in verse 2 of chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And so we come to this passage, we come to life, and remember last week, how many people were here last week, by the way? Many? Okay, good. So remember last week, the word vanity can mean different things in context. It could mean vanity like frustration. It could mean vanity like perplexing, scratching your head. Or it could mean something very temporary. So every one of those is going to apply. And I just want you to know from the outset, we come to this book from the lens of the New Testament, from progressive revelation, and we say, I'm going to read this like a Christian. I'm not going to read this like a rabbi. If you're here today, do we have any new, uh, uh, Jewish rabbis here today? Okay, good. If you're a rabbi here today, you're not going to agree with me because I'm preaching this like a Christian. When you think about vanity and meaninglessness, I think of the one who has rescued us from the meaningless life. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed from the empty way, the futile way, the vain way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so we come to this book and we see this lens of, 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 of Christ put over all of this book so we don't just say, well, it's just a Jewish book and it doesn't apply to me at all. No, we realize that Jesus is true. Did you know Jesus really lived on earth? I, I've said to many people, one of my favorite things in Israel, besides doing cannonballs in the Sea of Galilee, uh, that's kind of a fun thing to do, is there's a little plaque outside of 
of the, of, of the Mediterranean Sea, and it talks about Pontius Pilate. And there was a real man named Pontius Pilate who was a governor in Israel, and a real man that he persecuted was named Jesus. Right? We have, we have maps in the back, back of our Bible because this isn't Narnia. This isn't made up. A historical man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, actually lived on this earth. He actually lived, obeyed, merited righteousness for us, died for our unrighteousness, and was raised from the dead. And we come to these passages and think, this is really real. We, we, we come thinking, there's going to be a resurrection one day, the resurrection and the life. This is real when Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, you want the water that satisfies? It, it's me. So don't come to this book and say, it's all pessimistic, it's all horrible, it's honest, but it's good to read with joy. I don't know what you read around Thanksgiving time, but this book in the medieval times was written during the Feast of Tabernacles in the Jewish culture. It was written when you think, okay, how do we celebrate during Thanksgiving where we have agriculture and we have all the crops and everything else? What's a good book to say, God, we thank you? And for the Jews in the medieval times, it was this book filled with great joy. Filled with great joy. Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 as one man said, it's basically your freshman, sophomore, and junior year in college. I'd like to have satisfaction. The world's difficult. And so I'll turn to pleasure. I'll turn to wisdom. I'll turn to everything that the world has under the sun. And it's all vanity. I'm going to not live forever. I'm going to die. Is life worth living? And so I like it that Solomon is honest. He knows the real questions of life. Is there meaning to life? Is there an afterlife? Am I different than animals? Does God know? Does God care? And Solomon wants you to see, remember in verses 24 and 25 of chapter 2, that even though life is difficult, and even though meaning of life is not found in life, but the one who gives life, it says in chapter 2, verse 24, there's nothing better for a person than he should eat and drink that satisfaction language in the Old Testament, and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. From apart from him, that is God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? And with him, we learned last week, you can eat and you can have enjoyment, knowing who God is. So Solomon is writing, and this is in a section of scripture called wisdom literature. What are the wisdom books? Do we know? Psalms is wisdom book. Proverbs. Song of Solomon, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And so it's written in a way that's different than a story like a narrative or Paul's epistles. They're all good. They're all rich. But today we're going to learn the sovereignty of God in poetry. I'm not a big poetry guy, but I'm trying. If you want to read Christian poetry besides the Bible, a man named George Herbert in the 1600s, a very uh, a reformed man who, who wrote about the, the doctrines of God in poetry, but we're going to look at poetry today. When I was a kid in Nebraska, if somebody said, my, you know, a 12-year-old buddy with a crew cut said, I like poetry, we'd probably beat him up <laughs> verbally. This is, this is the sovereignty of God in poetry. Yeah, yes, it's true that I could talk to you like Westminster Standards did in the 1600s. God is ordaining whatsoever comes to pass. Yeah, I like that language. That's the sovereignty of God. But Ecclesiastes 3 is written in a poetic fashion, in wisdom fashion, with all kinds of parallelisms and, and metaphors and synonyms. And you're even going to learn today a new figure of speech 
in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Is life worth living? Is life just full of frustration? I mean, you think about chapters 1 and 2. Here's the world that we live in. It's like you go to the beach and you spend hours making sandcastles, moats, tunnels, hour after hour. And then guess what happens? You go back tomorrow, high tide comes up, you see nothing. There's no gain at all. I did all this work and it's back to square one. That's what's life like. That's what life is like if you don't think about who God is. It's back to Ecclesiastes 1.3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? This world's wrecked by the fall. Adam, our federal head, sinned, and the creation now groans. What do we do? Tom Brady, I don't know if you know Tom Brady around here. He's fairly popular in New England, at least. He's won many Super Bowls, but here's what he said after he's won three Super Bowls. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? There's got to be more than this in life. That's, a, that's Ecclesiastes. So the meaning of life isn't found in life. It's found in the triune God who gives us life. That's the book of Ecclesiastes. And of course, chapters 1 and 2 is essentially enjoying the good things from God while you can on earth because they're from his hand. Your wife, your husband, your children, your spiritual gifts, the spirit of God dwelling in you, they're all from him, so praise him. And now we come to chapter 3, and maybe I'll call it this. Chapters 1 and 2, enjoying God. Chapter 3, embracing God's sovereignty. Embracing God's sovereignty. This is a Baptist church, so we have to have some alliteration here once in a while. Enjoying God and now embracing the sovereignty of God. Now, if you take a look at your Bibles, you're going to see in chapter 3, there's some spaces that are kind of odd between verses 2 and 9. That should be telling you, oh, it's a different kind of writing. You look back in chapter 2, verses 18 and following, it seems like it's all blocked up, the same style. And then now we've got extra spaces, and it's telling us, oh, this is going to be poetry. This is something a little bit different. And that's what we're going to do today is we're going to go through Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through about 15 or so, and then we'll wrap it up there so you can trust in the sovereignty of God himself. So far, God has only been mentioned a couple times, and when it's, he's been mentioned, it's the word Elohim. It means sovereign, creator, ruler. If I were to say to you, out of all the words of God that means sovereign, you'd probably say Adonai, that means sovereign, our Lord, our master, and Elohim, he creates everything. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 9. This is the reality of God's sovereignty, and then we'll look at a couple responses that we have for the sovereignty of God. I want you to know that as we, I read this, it's almost to be read like you've got asthma. It's almost to be read with short little... Back and forth, it's kind of like, uh, I don't know, you're slaloming down mammoth or something, and it's going back and forth, back and forth. There's this rhythm, there's this, there's this style that he has to make you kind of think, oh, it, it, it wants to pull you right in. Everything, for everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then he begins all these times. 
Sometimes it's good to see how many times the word time is written in this section because it's about time. Every event you're going to see is underneath the sovereign hand of God. God has designed things and God is sovereign over everything. He wants to illustrate that to you with this 14 negative statement, 14 positive statements to teach you about this. Covering the widest range of human experiences. A time to be born, verse 2, and a time to die. There's a time to plant, there's a time to pluck up what is planted. So before I read any other times, here's what I want to teach you today, dear class. I hated English class. I know it shows sometimes, but I'm going to teach you a figure of speech. We know about similes and metaphors and analogies. This is a figure of speech called a merism. M-E-R-I-S-M, a merism. Does anybody here know what a merism is? So we get to learn something new. A merism is a figure of speech designed to enlighten, to enliven. And instead of me saying, I, I lost my wife's sunglasses and I've looked for them everywhere. That's fine to say. But if you'd like to say them with a merism, here's how you say it. I've searched high and I've searched low for my wife's sunglasses. What does that mean? I've searched everywhere. Merisms are found in the Bible. Did you know God created the heavens and the earth? What does that mean? He created the heavens and the earth and everything in between. So when we read there's going to be a time to die and a time to live, everything between living and dying, God's sovereign over that time. Right? So what's that called again? A merism. See, isn't this fun? I love learning. By the way, that is a wonderful thing about being a Christian. We get to learn about the greatness of God until we die. And then when we get to heaven, we still get to learn because we're still finite creatures in heaven, although glorified, and we get to learn and learn and learn throughout all of heaven. And you never will forget anything true about God in heaven, and you'll never learn anything about God that's not true that you'll have to unlearn it. Because sometimes I read the Bible, I think, is that true? Did I learn that from some crazy teacher, some cult leader, somebody? Is that true? I have to learn for myself, but we get to learn over and over and over. So we have a lot of merisms. And I know what you're saying, Mike, just move on with merism. I get it. Okay. All right, let's do it then. A time to be born and a time to die. Can you control either? The point is God's sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over your birthday. He's sovereign over your death day. God is sovereign. God surprised over somebody's birth? Is he surprised over somebody's death? Is it out of his control? Did he not know? Couldn't he not have prevented it? God is sovereign. Life is fixed. Did you know, Job 14 says, since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Did you know all your days are written in the book that was ordained for you? Psalm 139. There's nothing you can do to extend your life past that. I mean, it's good that you, you guys take vitamins around this part of the country or anything? <laughs> Nutrient supplements? Fine, work out, take those things, do all that. You might have a better life while you're here on earth, but God has determined sovereignly the day you're going to die. That's kind of nice. I mean, laying there in the hospital thinking, am I going to die or not? It's in God's hands. Yes, there's nurses, there's the hospital, there's the medicine, but I can rest in God. I can trust in God. The sovereignty of God is not meant to vex you. It's meant to encourage you and to relax you. So you say, you know what? 
Uh, I remember when Luke was born, and Lord willing, he'll preach here next week. Luke's born, he's blue, he's got a negative Apgar, whatever he's got, it's just all bad. And we're thinking, what are we going to do? Off to the NICU, and you think, I don't know what's going on, I can't see things, and I don't know what'll happen. But we can trust the Lord. Though he slay me, yet I will what? Trust in him. There's a time to be born, there's a time to die. Short of the Lord's return, today would be a good day for him to come back, by the way. Short of the Lord's return, every one of you is going to die. And so you go, what am I going to do? I'm going to rest in God's sovereign hand. He knows, he understands. If 100 gang members are after you today and it's not your day to die, you're going to live. And if 10,000 SWAT team members are trying to guard you today and today's your day, you're not going to make it. Welcome to Santa Cruz Baptist Church. <laughs> you know the same's true for vegetation. What's the verse going to say? A time to plant, a time to pluck up what's planted. Did you know even the life of a basil plant is under the sovereign hand of God? That's what he's trying to say. Cilantro, you plant cilantro. How many people love cilantro? I mean, I love cilantro. I, I, sometimes I say on my radio show, if there were only a cologne made out of cilantro, I would wear it. And one of my listeners said, there is. And I thought, you cheapskate, you're supposed to buy it for me and send it to me. <laughs> there's a time to plant in the spring. There's a time to pluck up in the harvest. That's what he's trying to say. And you can kind of feel this kind of back and forth, this kind of not circle of life like in Lion King, but it just, this is the way God goes. This is the way he works. Verse 3, there's a time to kill and there's a time to heal. I'm not talking about murder here. There's a different word for that. It's a time to kill. Time for capital punishment. There's a time for healing. There's a time to break down, verse 3, and a time to build up. I'm sure the Jewish people were thinking there's a time to walk into some pagan temple and tear that thing down. There's also a time with Nehemiah and others to build up the right temple, to build up the tabernacle. There's just this season of life where everything's underneath the sovereign hand of God. Emotionally even, look at verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh. Everything is covered under these, underneath the sovereign umbrella of God. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. Someone dies, someone's sick, and you're sad. That's the right time. I'd always tell my children, you know, if, if you, especially my son, if you fall and scrape your knee, let's not cry. But if your grandma's sick or dying, that's the right time to cry. There's a time to dance. This is good for Baptists to know about. The time to dance in my calendar is Thursday night, 7 p.m., when Kim and I take ballroom dancing. Uh-huh. And every wife is saying, if only my husband would do that. <laughs> Verse 5. Oh, this is interesting. He's using these merisms to just say everything in life is under control. So, by the way, as I'm preaching to you now, I want you to know God's sovereign over your life. It doesn't look like it. It doesn't feel like it. It might not seem like it, but God is sovereign over everything. R.C. Sproul said, God's favorite doctrine is the sovereignty of God. And if you were God, it'd be your favorite doctrine too. How do we live without it? You think, okay, I know that Jesus loves me and he's died for me and he cares for me. And there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Yes, it's the Lord Jesus. But this Jesus isn't just a sin bearer, although I'm glad he is. This Jesus isn't just a righteousness earner, although I'm glad he is. This Jesus isn't just a, a person who can conquer death, 
We're singing that song today. One moment the body's dead and the next it starts breathing. He raises himself from the dead. That's all true. But this Jesus is called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords for a reason. Amen. He's King of your life. He's Lord of your life and mine too. There's a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones. And you say to yourself, okay, how many people have been to Israel? By the way, I'm going in February. You're invited. If you got the four grand cash, it's not an open invitation. Some people would say, you know, God said, angels, I want you to take a lot of stones and rocks, distribute them across the world. And they tripped and fell in Israel. Because you go there, there's rocks everywhere. How do they kill people in Israel? Well, they don't now, but how did they kill them in the past? They stoned them. What do you mean? What's this verse all about? There's a, there's a time to cast away stones. There's a time to gather them. If you were to destroy a field back in the old days and you were a conquering nation, what did you do? You dry up the wells. You burn as many houses as you could. And listen to 2 Kings 3. And ruin every good piece of land with stones. Just throw them all there. In New England, if you've been there, you realize there are rock fences everywhere. Why are there rock fences in New England? Because every year you're planting your crops in New England and then it's winter and there's frost heaves and these rocks just start coming out of the ground. Where do you put them? I have no idea where to put them. Let's make a fence. They're not trying to block off their territory. They're trying to say we need to get these stones out of our yard. So there's a time to make a brick wall, a stone wall. There's a time to get rid of them. Matter of fact, in verse 5, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing one man said, I thought this was kind of interesting, he said, the right time to embrace is on your wedding night, and the right time to refrain from embracing is when you meet a person with leprosy. <laughs> Sounds good to me, all under the sovereign hand of God. There's a time to seek and a time to lose. You just feel yourself slaloming down that, that mammoth course, right back and forth, everything under these meristic qualities, God's sovereign over everything. It could be in Romans language. It could be Psalm 103. God's sovereignty rules over all. Or it could be poetry right here. There's a time for everything. There's a time to keep, verse 6. There's a time to cast away. You seek, you lose, you keep, you cast away. It's time to tear. Verse 7, there's a time to sow. This right here is especially talking about grief. What would you do back in the day if you lost somebody? You, you tear your clothing. I'm sad. And if the time was right, you'd sew it back up again. He's sovereign over everything, including grief. There's a time to be silent, and there's a time to speak, verse 7. A time to love, a time to hate. A time for war, and a time for peace. And I know what some of you are saying. We laughed last week about secular songs in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 3, 1 to 8 is sung by someone back in the 60s and they made it very popular, did they not? And what's the band's name? The Birds. Turn, turn, turn. They got it almost right until they added a little phrase at the end to make it an anti-Vietnam pro-peace song and they added the words, I swear it's not too late. So before you go around saying we want the worship team to sing the Birds, turn, turn, turn in light of Pastor's sermon, you might want to think twice. There's a time for everything. And, and you know, it doesn't take you much to go back to Jesus' life and you think in the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
when the time was exactly right, the announcement in Mark 1.15, when the time had been fulfilled, Jesus shows up to begin preaching. At the right time, did Jesus not know when to mourn over Jerusalem? And time to heal when he met the leper or the demoniac. You look at Jesus and you can see he's sovereign over all this. There's a time to mourn the man of sorrows. We were, were listening about Isaiah 53 earlier today. He, he stands before the Sanhedrin and he doesn't say a word. Stands before Pilate and then he speaks. There's a right time for everything. Everything has its time. Verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? Looking from God's perspective, we understand certain things. Here, from human perspective, what gain has the worker from his toil? If it's only life under the sun, there's no resurrection, there's no eternal life, it's pretty depressing. The right angle, the right perspective, verse 10, I've seen the busyness that God has given the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything what? Beautiful or appropriate or handsome in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God is sovereign. He's, he's wonderful. He has a knowledge that we don't have. The only knowledge we have is what he tells us. And we have to say to ourselves, what we have from scriptures we know, but there are sovereign mysteries beyond all that. I love this section here. Everything is beautiful in its time. Everything's appropriate. God will make everything. Did you know there's a verse that's a famous verse that many of you think is your life verse, and it's God works everything together for good. That's what he's talking about here, the sovereignty of God. I like it that it says he's put eternity into man's heart. Isn't there more than life to this? Isn't there an afterlife? If you go to Egypt and you see pyramids, the pyramids shout out many things. Here's one of the things it shouts out. Even those people in Egypt knew that they had eternity in their hearts and they were longing for life after. Instead of trusting in the risen Savior, it was trusting in scarab beetles put on their chest when they're dead, right? Scarab beetles are kind of weird. But the eternity is put in our heart. There's afterlife. We're searching. We're, we're longing. Every one of us says, there's a deep-seated desire in my heart for, their, for, for more than this. Augustine said, you've made us for yourself, God, and our hearts are restless until they find peace in you. Oh, I, I think I saw another merism. Did you not see it? In verse 11, find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What's he trying to say? He's trying to say God's sovereign. Using poetry, God's sovereign over everything in this entire world. So what? Remember every preacher or you would teach a Sunday school class, you should ask this question either explicitly or implicitly. So what? If God is sovereign, so what? What do I do? What's the big deal? Let me give you two responses or two so what's. Does so what kind of sound like irreverent? So what? No, no. If God's sovereign, what does that mean? Response number one to the sovereignty of God, found in verses 12 and 13. Almost exactly like last week, enjoy the triune God's gifts because he's sovereign. He sovereignly gave you. He sovereignly gave you things, so how do you respond to a good God who gives you things? 
Well, let's see. Verse 12. I perceive that there's nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live so that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Since God is running the world, since God is running your world, have joy, relax, and then go find a roof and then just sit on the roof the whole time and don't do anything since God's sovereign. I mean, God's sovereign, why pray? God's sovereign, why evangelize? God's sovereign, why come to the parade tomorrow to talk about Jesus? He's sovereign. What's the text say? Yes, do joyful, be joyful, and to do what? Good. God's sovereign, so we work. We're not lawless people. We think God's sovereign, and God's sovereign, he means that we, we, we understand he has the ends that he's sovereign over and the means. For instance, with evangelism, every person that God has chosen will get to heaven. Jesus won't lose one. All that the Father's given to me will make it. He'll not cast out one. But how does God save people? He could, by divine fiat, just say you're saved. But how does God ordinarily save people? Through the preaching of the gospel. And so since God's sovereign, we do good. Why pray? God's going to do what he wants to do anyway. Answer, Jesus has told us to pray. He's given us a model to pray. We're commanded to pray. God works through prayers, so we pray. God's sovereign, we're joyful, and we work. We do good. We serve. He's running the world. You don't have to. I don't know all of you. I'm getting to know some of you better. But so far, I have not met a person at Santa Cruz Baptist Church that I would like to have run my world. <laughs> or any world, for that matter. And you don't want me running it either. I mean, think about how weak we are and how sinful we are and how finite we are. We need somebody who, who could be in charge and who can follow through and have enough power and enough wisdom and, and figure out all the different things and what if and flowcharts. Did you know God is so sovereign in the scriptures? The tenor of scripture is not God has plans. God has decrees. God has purposes. God has a decree. One single thought of God runs this entire world in history, past and in future. The decree of God. Everything is determined by the one purpose and decree of God. You think, wait a second, that's blowing my mind. Yes, that's what I want you to think. Here's my world. If this happens, I do that. If the carburetor breaks, I do that. If the head gasket goes, I do that. Notice I have a lot of car problems in my life. <laughs> that's not how God thinks. God is sovereign, one single, solitary, Ephesians 3.11, Ephesians 1.11, sovereign plan. And you say to yourself, any God that could do that, besides saving me from my sins, besides redeeming me and reconciling me to him, I say to myself, I have joy. God's sovereign. I, I have joy. Speaking of cars, I remember one guy who said, had a big van, a bunch of kids. He was a pastor. And uh, his van broke down and he said, Lord, you know I don't have the money to fix this van, and after all, it's your van. And you gave me the van, and so I'm going to need some help fixing your van. I thought that's a good way to look at it. Jesus has everything under control so you can trust him. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father. See, he knew that, and he knew exactly when to show up in the incarnation, exactly when to die. Exactly how to be raised from the dead. I'd like you to turn your Bibles to Matthew 11 for a moment. I don't do a lot of skipping around in different verses. I'd like you to tuck yourself into one main passage and just stay there. 
people that go to 50 different verses in a sermon, we call that audible preaching. 426, 832, 1438. I want you to just stick right there. We'll go to one spot. Here's the one spot that I want you to see from Christ's life where you go, sovereignty of God should have me respond some way. If God's sovereign, since God's sovereign, what do I re- how do I respond? Matthew 11, verses 27 and following. All things have been handed over me to me by my Father. That's sovereignty language. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Did you get that? If you're saved, it's because God has revealed himself to you. This is the sovereign choice of God that you would be a Christian. I choose you. I don't have to choose anybody. When the angels fell, none of them got chosen for salvation. But God in his mercy and grace chooses sinners. And has a son die for them. Jesus, did you know he died for you, dear Christian? And he's sovereign over everything. God is so sovereign, that makes me mad. Why evangelize? Why pray? Why do anything? It's fatalism. It's some kind of mono-decree. I don't want anything to do with it. Oh, that's not how the Lord teaches it. When you know God's sovereign, from Romans 8 or Ecclesiastes 3, what's the response? Do you see it? If God is so sovereign, and he is, to anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him, what's the response? Here's the response, dear Christian. Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Don't ever read verses twenty eight through thirty without reading twenty seven and twenty eight, or, or verse twenty seven rather. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I can think of life under the sun that way. I can think of Ecclesiastes that way. I can think of a futility of life, a, a difficult life that way. It's a hard life. What do we do? Come to me, all who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you what rest. You don't have to control the world. You can't control the world. The solution to trying to control the world is to try. You'll realize it can't. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Isn't that good? God's sovereign. Rest. What's a synonym for rest? Trust. Lord, Lord, make my, my, my heart just settle down. Sometimes when my children were little and they would get anxious about something, I'd pick them up and kind of sing to them and then I would hold them tightly, not to suffocate them. <laughs> I thought you might laugh at that. Don't you? But <laughs> firmer than normal, closer than normal. What was I trying to convince them of? Daddy's strong. Daddy's got you. You're okay. Everything's fine in the Father's house. I've got you right in my arms. I'm embracing you. Did you know that's what the word embrace means? To hold in your arms. From breaky, from arm. I mean, that's what I want you to do with the sovereignty of God. God has me. He, he has me. Yeah, my life doesn't seem like that. I know that's why we have revelation to tell us. If you don't like poetry, here's the Westminster Confession of Faith. God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And since he's so sovereign, we want to strive for holy living. And since he's so sovereign, we want to have joy. 
It's not that we just say, lay back and let God and coast. Not at all. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes and land this plane. You ever heard a preacher, he's about ready to land a plane, and then he goes back up again. Like, just touch landing. You're like, I'm ready for communion. I'm down for God's sovereignty. And then, oh, down they go. Up they go. Back to Ecclesiastes for the second response. As we come to this passage thinking about Jesus and looking through the lens of Christ, the bread of life who comes that we might not hunger, but we have eternal life. God's sovereign, so we have joy. We want to work. And there's one other response we should have to the sovereignty of God. So what? Number two, fear God. Verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. I mean, he's sovereign. Nothing can be taken away or nor anything taken from it. He's sovereign. God has done it. What's the response? Oh, there was joy earlier. There's work earlier. Striving for holiness earlier. And now it's different so that people may fear before him. Remember at the end of the book, after all has been said and done, how does Ecclesiastes end? Fear God and what? Keep his commandments. True or false? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Amen. True. It's everywhere in Proverbs. It's there in Job. So what kind of fear am I supposed to have? There's two kinds of fear that are responses to God. The first one is an unbeliever. And if you're an unbeliever here today, this is what you should be thinking. God is so holy. God is so righteous that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, and I'll die one day and stand before God. And without Christ Jesus, I'm going to hell forever. This is a fear that the person above you can torture you, can execute you, can damn you. Should you be afraid of God if you're an unbeliever? You should be very afraid. S. Lewis Johnson, a kind, gentlemanly man from the South, used to say, I don't want you to have any rest, unbeliever, until you rest in him. It should make you stay up all night thinking, am I right with God? Because the only hope I have is Jesus. Amen. It's faith in him because I know I'm sinful and I'm trusting in another. That's the servile fear of God, Luther called it. But there's another kind of fear. Because I don't want you, Christian, to fear in a kind of, you know, I've been kicked too many times as a, like a dog and I'm just backing off or I'm afraid of God. There's a different kind of fear. Here's the kind of fear that Solomon is talking about. On a human level, you've got a father. He's not a perfect dad, but he's a great dad. And he has provided for you and taken care of you, oversaw things, helped you. And you think, my dad is so great. I'd like to honor him. Somebody says something bad about my dad, I defend him. And I want to honor him because he's such a great dad. I want to obey him, not because if I do, he'll keep me as a son or a daughter, but because he's so great, I'd like to honor and obey him. That's called a filial fear, a, fil a, son, a, a son's fear, a daughter's fear. Which one should the Christian have? It is not a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, dear Christian, for you, because that's exactly what Jesus did, Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you what? Forsaken me. Answer the question so that you wouldn't be forsaken, so that I wouldn't be forsaken. So when you read the fear of the Lord, it's not, I'm an unbeliever and I'm crouching in shame. It's God is so great. Of course, I want to be in awe. 
I, I would have stand there thinking, God is so great. Of course, I'd like to honor you and respect you and obey you. This is a key command in the book of Ecclesiastes. God is so powerful, so full of authority, so sovereign. God, yes, in fact, that's the context. He's so sovereign, I say, wow. I don't know where his theology is anymore, but we used to sing a song often in Christian circles, and it was, my God is an awesome God. Remember, our God is an awesome God. I just started to sing for a second. What's the response of such an awesome God? Reverence. A hunter, obedience. This is guilt, grace, gratitude. God, you're so great, and I'm so guilty. I want to respond with gratitude. Ecclesiastes 5, fear God. Ecclesiastes 7, fear God. Ecclesiastes 8, fear God. Ecclesiastes 12, fear God. God is sovereign over your life and over mine. Aren't you glad? Oh, I'd like to get married one day, you say. You could trust God's sovereignty. I'd like to have kids someday. It's hard for us to have kids. You can rest in God's sovereignty. I don't know if I have enough money so I can live, what if I live too long past my retirement? I'm not saying you shouldn't invest. I'm not saying you shouldn't do this. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. Young men, start looking. Right? But you can rest in God. I got that diagnosis from the hospital. God's sovereignty. My daughter's not a Christian, you might say, God saw. There's a time for everything, and God does work everything for good. Aren't you glad? Yeah. God is sovereign over everything. Let's pray.